1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul continues to address a church that is divided around personalities and pride. As we look to the reading of God's word, if you would please join me in prayer. Blessed are you, holy God. In Jesus Christ, your light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Father, indeed, you are our God of light. And we ask then that you would shine in our lives with the light of Christ, that we might give you praise through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Amen. Beginning in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. For neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. The word of the Lord. I'm sure many of you have had an experience like this. A friend whispers at a high school lunch table, there's going to be a history test tomorrow on chapter 7. And immediately everyone draws in closer. Really? Yeah. And then this next thing takes place. There's a feeling of smug pride at everyone around the table because they have inside information that no one else has. And you're going to really prepare tonight. And there's this malicious smile hits your face as you think of how high your grade is going to be compared to those suckers who don't know. And now you walk into your fourth period class, slightly elevated in your superior insight to knowledge until, until you look on the board in front of you and there is plain as day for everyone to read. Test tomorrow, chapter 7. And you find out your friend, he just simply had it in first period, and he was telling you the obvious. Why all the cloak and dagger? Because at least for a few minutes, it made him feel special, just like it did you. I mean, what's the response when you see that information now posted for everyone? You're not like, oh, great, everyone gets to know. No, it's like, oh. Why that part of our heart? Why is it that even in a small example like that, we recognize the pride of inside knowledge? Because when we think we know something that others don't, it puffs up our pride. And that's what's happening with the Corinthians. They're suffering from this kind of immaturity and pride, being in the right group, having the inside track or special knowledge, thinking they were wise. All of this led to divisions in the church, to stunted character growth. This pride of inside knowledge and special status, special wisdom, it keeps us from growing in the Lord. Immaturity is not in how little we know. It's in how little we love and serve others. And because the Lord has given everything to us in Christ. There's no room for boasting or elevating ourselves at someone else's expense. 
Now, if we back up just a little bit in chapter 2, we see what Paul is saying there. It flows immediately into chapter 3. He has said in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The person without the Spirit, meaning a non-Christian, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish, cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. You don't figure things out. God has to turn on the lights. You see with the light that he has given you. Many of you know William, William Wilberforce. He was a member of British Parliament. He's a pivotal leader in the movement which abolished slavery in the British Empire in 1833. But he was a devout Christian, and his close friend, William Pitt, was not. Pitt had become the youngest prime minister of England at age 24, widely respected for his outstanding administrative abilities, his statesmanship. And Wilberforce was always concerned about his friend's faith or lack of it. Is a very nominal Christian. And he was constantly trying to talk to him about this and and work it in the conversation. And after months of working on his friend, he finally got him to agree to come and listen to this famous preacher, Richard Cecil. And they're in church, and Cecil is masterfully preaching on the glories of the kingdom of God and the truths of the gospel. And Wilberforce is sitting there in great joy, just so excited for what he's hearing. And his friend William's hearing it as well. And he couldn't wait to get outside and to hear what Pitt thought of all of this. Well, the minute they left the sanctuary, he found out right away. Pitt turned to his friend. He said, I didn't understand a word that man was talking about. What was it? The hope that was there, that he would have figured it out. And many of us have had this experience on one side or the other, where maybe we're on the Wilberforce side, and we're just thinking, if only I could get my fill-in-the-blank to listen to fill-in-the-blank. Then they will know, then they will hear, and they'll believe. Or maybe it's from Pitt's side, where you recognize that you've been sitting in church a long time or hearing the gospel, but it was simply just empty words until the Spirit breathed new life into you. And this is Paul's point as he heads into chapter 3. What makes you spiritual, what makes you a spiritual person, is the Holy Spirit in you. Not the t-shirt you're wearing from the latest Power Now conference with this super amazing speaker. Not because of some inside knowledge you think you have that others don't, that elevates your group. It's Christ in you. And Paul, he tells them, you need to grow up now. He said, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. Some of you who are a little older may remember uh, teaching by Campus Crusade and a few others, giving three classes of people non-Christians, spiritual Christians, and and carnal or fleshly Christians. That's not what Paul is teaching here. You either have the Spirit or you do not. It is possible, though, to have the Spirit and act like you don't. And this is what Paul is saying. You have become a living contradiction. You're living in a way that's different than what you should be for those who have the Spirit of God. When Paul first came to them, he gave them the milk of gospel proclamation. 
exactly what they needed to hear at the time. And he stayed with them for a year and a half. And now it's some three to four years later that he's writing to them. They're not infants who need to grow up. They're adults behaving like children. And it's not an issue of complicated teaching or the intellect. It's an issue of the heart. One writer put it this way. He said, the Corinthians do not need a change of diet, but a change in perspective. Appreciate John Piper putting some of these thoughts together. He says, the solid food is not for smart people. It's for humble people. People who have stopped pursuing the pleasures of self-confidence, self-exaltation, self-determination. People who now only want to boast in the Lord and give him all the glory for whatever good there is in the world and in their lives. That's solid food people. But Paul goes on and he says in verse 3, but you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you're not. Are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? Now, just like in English, uh, that word flesh can be used in different ways depending on context. And here Paul is saying, you are acting like non-Christians who do not have the Spirit. And that's, that's the rebuke. Behave like who you are. He says in verse 4, for one says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely human? Who's Apollos? Who's Paul? We're servants. It's the Lord that you need to be concerned with. I planted Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In verse 10, by the grace God has given to me, even that, he says, is a gift. It's about bringing glory to the Lord and not to his servants. Just look at how many times Paul mentions in this very short section, God. We're all on the same team. Whose team? God's. We're servants of God. God picks who plays what position. God is the one who brings it all together and makes it work. God gives the grace. You belong to God. We belong to God. He highlights God throughout all of this. Their boasting and their pride in mere humans tarnish the glory of God. You cannot be Christ-like if you're caught up in divisions, rivalries, and petty pride. Now, a question that comes, well, what about this reward part? He's talking about. How does that fit in? In verse 8, he who plants, he who waters are one, each will receive his wage, his reward, according to his labor. And then he goes on in verse 10, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, on Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. The day is referring to the return of Christ, the, the end of all things. That at the end, he goes on and says it will be revealed with fire. Fire speaking of, of testing the value of something. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. This is the side because it gets asked here. Uh, Roman Catholics often use this very verse as a proof text for their idea of purgatory. For them, purgatory is a place between death and and heaven where a believer may spend a few thousand years uh, being refined and having their sins purged out of them. I, that's a hard one to see. There's, this Paul has nothing to do with that conversation here. It's about the church. Speaking of those who are building up and planting the, the church, 
And he goes on, he says, if what has been built, meaning the labor that you've labored in the church, if it survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flame. Very clear, this is not about salvation. It's about being commended for the labor that's done in building up the body of Christ. Scripture speaks of appearing before the Lord and our our deeds being judged by him. But Paul's focus here is not so much on what that looks like. We would like a sentence or two more. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What does that look like, Paul? That that's not his point. His point is that he will give an account to the Lord for his labors. The Corinthians are like a bunch of first-year medical students criticizing their learned instructor on procedures they've never done before. But Paul is pointing this out. Paul says, I'm an expert builder. My work will be tested and tried by the Lord, judged by his standards, by his wisdom, not yours. That's his point. He will give an account to God, he and Apollos and others, and God will be the one who will commend them or not. And then he goes on and he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? speaking of them collectively, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. He's shifting focus to anyone who would harm the church, saying we are there to build it up. But if there are some, anyone else, false teachers out there, who would do harm to the church, they're not just going to have their works tested and found wanting, but they themselves will be judged and found wanting. His warning is very clear. If any are masquerading themselves as Christian leaders, try to bring glory to themselves and not to the Lord, they will not stand in the judgment. If any are Christians and try to bring glory to themselves, their works will not stand in the judgment. He's making that distinction. So what about Paul? What about Apollos? Don't give too much honor to your leaders or don't think of them too highly because God is the focus. And don't be dismissive of them because God has given them to you. It's putting it in its right perspective. God is the one who's the focus here. He is the one who gives to his people gifts to build them up. One New Testament scholar put it this way. To be spiritually minded is to bring different criteria to the role and style of preachers and teachers. You you think about that differently. What makes it good? What makes it qualitative? But they're not thinking like Christians would think. That's the problem. They're thinking that eloquence is the same as substance. They're thinking that giftedness is the same as godliness. They are splitting into cliques and groups of people based on the man, the brand, or the band. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Verse 18, do not deceive yourself. If any one of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. What the world values is not what the Lord values. And if you're going to judge the works of God according to the world, you are a fool. 
any pursuit of worldly values will end up with you deceiving yourself. Why? Verse 19, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. That quote comes from the book of Job, from Eliphaz, who was one of Job's friends who accused him falsely. God is using Eliphaz's own words rightly, even though spoken by a fool, to make his point. And then he quotes from Psalm 94, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They're futile. Speaking of worldly wisdom, no one is going to get one over on the Lord. The things of the Lord belong to the Lord. We value and judge things by the Spirit in us according to the Word of God. And the Corinthians are are caught up with this inside knowledge and supposed wisdom, hidden insights that they have that other people don't. Spiritual gifts, they think, oh, I have all these spiritual gifts, so that makes me a super spiritual person. They think they're all that in a bag of chips. And Paul deflates their egos. What's his solution to these divisions, to these petty pride problems in the church? He says in verse 21, So then, no more boasting, no more glorying about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas or the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. God has written on the board for everyone to see Christ, the hidden wisdom of God, now revealed to all ages. It's for everyone to see. And they're a part of proclaiming that, not hiding it, not keeping it in. They are to glory in the cross. That's what he he already said in in chapter 2. Glory in the cross, not in, in your supposed wisdom or your accomplishments. That's nothing. Put the focus back where it needs to be on the person and work of Jesus. In Corinthians, if you are in Christ, you, you don't belong to yourself. If you're in Christ, then all of his riches are yours, including the great gifts of the apostles. Whether it be Paul or Apollos, it doesn't matter. It's not a competition. We're all on the same team. You are spiritual if you belong to Jesus. All he has, the Father has given to you because he is in the Father. All is yours. Likely that is a a Corinthian catchphrase that Paul is using because they're talking about this themselves. Paul uses it, redefines it, corrects it. Yeah, you're right. Everything is yours. Not in pride, but in humility. He's going to go on in chapter 4 and verse 7. He's going to say, everything's a gift. There's no boasting if you've received a gift. It's free. The church does not belong to the apostles. They belong to the church. Everything is yours. And you also belong to everyone else because you have been united in Christ. You are in him. You share then in Christ's lordship You share then with his suffering. You share with all those who have the Holy Spirit. And that tendency, going all the way back to high school, earlier is to feel superior because we know something somebody else doesn't. 
And it doesn't matter what denomination you put that on. It's a problem for all of us. It's universal. I'm glad I'm a Episcopalian. I'm glad I'm not Episcopalian. I'm glad I'm a fill-in-the-blank. I'm glad I'm not a. And there are real differences we acknowledge. But if we're in Christ, again, those differences have nothing to do with our status, nothing to do with, with who we are. Everything's a gift from God. And so we're able then to appreciate God's good gifts to everyone. We're able to come and, and to want the, all across the board for everyone to see Jesus, the hidden mystery of God, now revealed to all the ages, that we are participating in that. And we work against that, that petty pride that would try to, to push ourselves up by pushing someone else down. That causes divisions. That causes rivalries. That causes self-deception in the body of Christ. And Paul is saying, that shouldn't be, brothers, sisters. We should be able to rejoice. Oh, you got the information too? Isn't that great? Yeah. Because what I have has been given as a gift too, just like you. And that heart of gratitude flows from the gift. And say, oh, I figured it out on my own. I was so happy when I puzzled and puzzled till my puzzle was sore and I understood the great truths of God. No, you didn't. You're like William Pitt. I have no idea what that man's talking about. Until God opens your eyes. And that should give us compassion on those who haven't had their eyes opened yet, as well as a desire to pray and to earnestly ask and, and beseech the Lord, God, Open our eyes to see. And it should also put us in a humble spot going, I didn't receive it because anything within me. And therefore, I can appreciate the good gifts of God that he has distributed throughout his church and pray for them to grow and to blossom and to flourish because everything is ours in Christ. Pray with me. Father, you indeed have given us such great gifts. You have opened up the storehouses of heaven for us. And Lord, we are so grateful for everything that we have received through Jesus. We are so thankful for the free gift of salvation, for his righteousness being imputed to us. And Father, we do ask that you would forgive us every time we try to elevate our own hearts at the expense of others. Lord, draw us on to maturity that we would be able to eat all things that come from your table with true humility and gratitude and reverence. Father, may you continue to purify your church. We desperately need it. And this we ask and pray through Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Will you please stand together as we sing the church's one foundation.